Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. We provide full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners to keep you up to date with new developments in arboriculture. Today's talk is by Jim Nesser, the Utility Sales Representative for the Rainbow Tree Care Scientific Advancements Company since 2007. Jim also has experience as a pruning foreman in the utility industry. He graduated from the University of Minnesota. This podcast features his talk on tree growth regulators, a valuable tool in IVM. This talk was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia in July 2011. All right, I work for Rainbow Tree Care Scientific Advancements, which is located in Minnesota, a long ways from here, so I'm uh, pleasantly surprised to get the invitation to come down here, and I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to try to speed through this presentation a little bit and allow 10 to 15 minutes of questions at the end because it appears that there are a lot of questions from the Australian audience that's come up in a couple other talks today. So to the, this morning and I believe yesterday as well. So we'll get started. First, I always like to uh, show people where I come from. <clears throat> Anytime I'm going to a new location, I like to do a little bit of research and, and look at the area I'm going to. And uh, if you can notice the little red flag up there, we're in the northern part of the United States, which is an interesting climate. So I like to look at things that you guys like to do here and see if it, it compares to the things we like to do back in Minnesota. Golf, I saw a lot of golf courses around. It looks like you guys like to do some golf around here. Fishing, that's pretty much universal. I think pretty much everywhere I've gone in the, in the country, in the United States and out in Australia, fishing is very popular. And of course, swimming, the Bondi Beach looks to be one of the most popular beaches in the world. So these are all things we like to do in Minnesota as well. The terrain is a little bit different. Sometimes when we golf, we have to dig little holes and use big tennis balls in the snow. But it's still an enjoyable sport. Uh, fishing, same thing. We have to drill a hole in the ice to be able to fish and, and catch the... You can tell you have to dress a little bit different than the people were in the other picture. Of course, swimming is the same thing. When we do it in February, we have to cut a hole in the ice. This is a very popular pastime. Uh, it's called the polar plunge. You can see by the let's, looks of excitement on their faces that this is a very enjoyable pastime in sport. Uh, you do run into some issues. You have to have safety people there to protect against people freezing to death. You can see the ice forming on the ladder there. So we often get termed as people that are a little bit crazy due to the environment we we live in. And I just wanted to tell this quick little story. Uh, the first time I met anybody from Australia was at the St. Louis conference, the ISA conference, I believe maybe 2008. 
and we were enjoying a, a beverage, and we heard a loud ruckus in the, the nearby pub. So a colleague of mine, Jim Zwack, and myself walked over there to see what was going on, and this is the first time I was introduced to Craig Hallam. They were playing a game in the bar, which was, I believe, pronounced guana or guana. I don't know what they did. They called it Australian tug-of-war. And I got to witness Tim Gamma, the president at that time elect, get down on the ground and use belts to do a tug-of-war with an Australian. So I decided Australians are just as crazy as Minnesotans, so we should meet and go. That's a picture of Tim there. All right, let's get started. I wanted to talk a little bit first about some of the vegetation management pains we've dealt with in the U.S. It's been touched on on a whole bunch of uh, talks earlier today. John brought up several things that I'm going to touch on as well. Then I'm going to go through the success of tree growth regulators and how they're working in the United States, touching on the growth reduction, the health benefits associated to it, and then another way we can look at that is a tool to enhance our partnerships and relationships. Then I'll go through a little bit of the history of TGRs because there has been some history, which I've heard is also an issue in Australia. Some of the earlier technologies had some difficulties getting applications done properly. And then I'll go through implementing it in the real world. I wanted to just start with a couple of statistics and numbers up there. Uh, these are all large numbers. Uh, 138,000 miles a line, 2.1 million trees per year. $181 million on veg management. That's roughly what Pacific Gas and Electric does every year. They deal with 138,000 miles of distribution and transmission lines that they need to look at. They prune 2.1, prune or remove 2.1 million trees roughly and spend a lot of money on that. Another quick example, same kinds of numbers, 1,500 miles of line pruned in a year, 6 million veg management budget, 4.33, this is in reference to SADI, which John talked about a little bit, a duration of power interruption. This is the Knoxville Utility Board. This is a municipal utility in Tennessee. So same kinds of numbers. We're seeing large amounts of trees and lines pruned to a specific number all the time, get 10 feet of clearance, 15 feet of clearance, whatever it is that we're, we're looking at. We're spending a lot of money on it, and we're still having some outages and uh, issues with SADI and, and reliability. This was some work done by CN Consulting, a company in, in the United States that did some work with uh, tree uh, utility companies in North America, including Canada. They looked at uh, IOUs, investor-owned utilities, federal utilities, cooperative utilities, municipals. This is just looking at the number of trees that these companies have to manage in their right-of-ways. And you can see the smallest number up there is about 8,500. Uh, I think this one actually goes off the graph towards about 10 million trees that they're having to look at and manage within that right-of-way. This is a very large problem. Uh, they looked at the main reasons for doing the work, and we've heard this in every talk today, safety, reliability, uh, one that's an, a new up-and-coming one, complying with specific laws. It looks like that's something going on here as well. These are all the types of things that drive our vegetation management work. These are just some uh, reliability metrics. Uh, John mentioned safety and uh, safety and safety and whether that's a real important metric or if it really determines the amount of, of outages by trees can be debated. Uh, it is a, a tool we use to kind of see how we're doing currently. And John mentioned this number as well. 30% is roughly the number of trees that uh, tree caused outages within the safety metric. Uh, and this was 
still all from CN Consulting numbers and different utilities reporting. Some of them had very few tree-related outages. Some of them, nearly every outage they had was a tree-related outage. All right, so if we look at the utility vegetation management currently and where it stands, uh, we have a lot of very, very educated people. We're in an international situation. I'm over here in Australia from the United States talking to you about this. We have developed a lot of best management practices. We have certifications. There's a whole bunch of multiple tools that are starting to become available for utility managers. But with all that, we still have outages, customer relation issues, budget issues within the utility, regulations, which can be a good and a bad thing. I've got it on the negative side right now, which is driving a lot of this work. Many of the utilities in the US have just greatly increased the budgets and where they're spending money to try to go in and clear that wire. So the future, we know that trees are going to grow. We know the physics behind it. We know the biology behind it. We know that trees grow. As they grow into the wires, uh, they don't create a whole lot of outages with growings. John mentioned a few different percentages. I've heard it at 20%. I've heard it at 10%. It varies a little bit. Uh, we have budget issues that are continuing. They're, that's a constant issue. We also have higher expectations. This is related directly to the regulations. So what if we had something out there that we could reduce the growth of these trees that are growing, reduce the amount of outages we have from tree-related issues, reduce the costs, and then increase some positive customer relations? All right. I kind of look at it like this. At one point in time, the brightest minds in the world thought the earth was flat. And some people got together, maybe they got some best management practices back then, or, or who knows, but some people started stepping outside the box, maybe through research, maybe looking at different tools and different options and just different thought processes, and they figured out the earth is not flat, it's round. With the whole veg management that we've done in the United States for a number of years, Maybe we've kind of been in that box where we've thought the earth is flat. I think integrated vegetation management is a great tool and maybe a possibility that the earth is round and the utility vegetation management has many options out there. So that's just a little thing to keep in your mind. I will tie that back in a little bit at the end. So the future I look at is integrated vegetation management is a great option for utility people right now, utility managers. Partnerships. This has been a, a big push in the industry lately. Nelson led this a lot with his presidency, trying to build partnerships with other stakeholders. Professionalism, the certifications, the organizations, just lifting our whole industry up. And research, I know John's not a big advocate of research, but I, he does bring it up once in a while, another thing that's going to lift this industry up. All right, so now I'm going to get into T, TGRs, or tree growth regulators, tree growth retardants. I'm going to go through a little bit of the success in the United States. We've seen growth reduction of 40 to 70 percent on many species. Not all species, but on many species, and we know which ones those are. Maybe a little different in Australia, maybe things we have to look at. We have utilities using this tool, which have reduced their outages, reduced their costs, and extended their pruning cycles, and I'll show some real-life examples of that later. And then it's multiple species, as I mentioned, across diverse climates in the United States. I'm going to go through a series of slides here. 
just showing different locations, different growth reduction. Uh, this is a silver maple in Bowling Green, Kentucky. There's one year's growth, there's a second year's growth, versus one, two. This is eight branch samples on a Freeman maple, which is a hybrid maple in Minnesota that grows fairly fast. We took eight branch samples out of a treated tree, eight branches out of an untreated tree. You can see the increased biomass from eight branches versus these eight branches. Very common here, this is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The stacking of the leaves you will see after trees have been treated with tree growth regulators. This is looking at an individual leaf on a locust tree in Amarillo. Uh, it's just a regular sheet of paper there, so you can see this leaf still has just as many leaflets and little side branches on it as it does as this one, but you can see how much more compact that leaf is. The tree growth regulator is just reduce, reducing the elongation of those cells, which I'll get into later. More examples here, this is in Pennsylvania, red maple. These are random samples that we've taken out of a tree after it's been treated or untreated. We set up a lot of trials like this around the country. Uh, we aren't picking the short ones and then picking the long ones. These are random samples. We have a research director that does a lot of this. Yellow tab in Florida, I like to show this one. This also shows the reduction you'll see in the diameter of the branches. This is two years after treatment. This is one of my favorite pictures. This is uh, Casarina in Texas. Uh, this is one year's growth, 11 months, versus this one. You'll see the different piles on the ground there. This was a research trial where we went in and looked at different rates to try to determine what the proper rate was for that species. So the two he's holding are the extreme cases. This was the shortest branch that we tested, and this was the longest. But you can see several of these other ones. We saw a 67% growth reduction in 11 months on this species in Texas. North Carolina, along a power line, this was, I don't remember what tree species that was. Uh, eucalyptus in Sacramento. This is a photo that is taken 18 months after these trees were treated. They were pruned and treated. You can see they're still very clear from the conductors. Live oak in Alabama, this is another very good picture. Uh, you may have seen this in, I wrote an article in the UAA last fall and this picture was in that one. Uh, this tree you can see is very, very dark green. You don't see a whole lot of growth along the top. This one much lighter green and then you'll see all those long resurgent growth branches along the top of it. When you look at that, uh, this is the same study. These are the branches that we actually took out of these trees. This is a six-foot pole saw section. This is 11 months after they were pruned and treated. So these trees were growing six feet if they were untreated and about three to four if they were treated. Multiple trees, this was, I forget if he took five branches or eight branches from each tree in this one, but these are all piled up. So each one of these piles represents a random sample of branches from a untreated tree and from a treated tree. I just threw this map up here. This, these stars actually represent all of the pictures that you just saw. So that shows you that this is spread throughout the United States. If I put every spot on there that we've used it, it there'd be a lot more stars on it, but I just wanted to put the ones that we had pictures from. 
Uh, California, which has some similar species to you guys. Florida, which has its own host of species down there. I don't recognize most of them. You know, some drier climates, a little bit uh, wetter climates down here. So we have a large range of species, diversity of climate, rainfall. We've seen consistent results across all these parts of the country. Predictable, it's become a very predictable tool. We get 40 to 70% growth reduction, as I mentioned. You saw all the different spots around the country that we've seen this. All right, switching topics here a little bit, I'm gonna go into the tree health benefits associated to Cambostat and how it can be used as a tool to improve customer relations. The isoprenoid pathway is where the product actually works. This happens in the apical meristems of the tree. And basically, paclobutrazol, which is the active ingredient, blocks this process here, which develops into gibberellins. So you're stopping the production of the gibberellins, which is the hormone responsible for cell elongation. Now, many of the plant health benefits that come to that come off are because you still have all that energy going into the tree and it goes to other things. Now this slide is good for the researchers, but everybody that's not a researcher right now that's a practical arborist is looking like that in the back of the room. I think there's a couple of them back there that are about asleep on me. So I'm gonna show it in a little bit different version. This is one that I understand a little better. Uh, basically, this is done by uh, Dr. Herms in Ohio State. It's his energy budget theory. He's basically saying a tree spends its energy on these different areas, vegetation growth, reproductive structures, root growth, defense compounds, and storage. The majority of the time, a tree is spending most of its energy on vegetation growth. So with Cambostat or Paclobutrazol, TGR, whatever you would like to call it at the moment, what we're doing is dropping down the amount of energy that goes into vegetation growth, which is opening up and sending that energy to all these other items, which is where we'll see the health benefits come in. Go through a few of these here. Root growth, drought tolerance, and urban stress. This was done by Dr. Bill Cheney, who's a professor at Purdue that did a lot of research on tree growth regulators. This is root development. These photos were taken six years after the tree on the right was treated. See a big increase in fibrous root mass. There was a question, I forget which talk it was in, maybe, maybe yesterday, about the larger roots, and those we do not see increases of the large roots, so we don't see issues with sidewalks and things like that. It's just increasing the fibrous root production. Another picture, this was uh, at the Morton Arboretum in Chicago area. This was taken one year, I believe, after the photo, or after treatment. You can see the increased fibrous root growth on this tree. This is from the same area, the Morton Arboretum. These are the same trees in that study that the root one was showing. I'd show this picture because you can see how dark green this is. This is an increase in chlorophyll in the tree. Very common effect in tree growth regulators for two reasons. One, the leaves are all smaller, so they look like there's, they're darker green because you've got less surface there. And then there are some studies out that show that it actually does or can produce more chlorophyll as well. All right, close up of the leaves there. Drought tolerance and disease resistance. 
Uh, when paclobutrazole was first being looked at, they were actually looking at it as a, uh, a fungicide or a disease, uh, a disease treatment for trees. So that was one of the things they were looking at. They did a lot of studies in this area. This was also done by Dr. Cheney. This is looking at the leaf thickness. You see an increase in the leaf thickness. If you actually grab a leaf, it feels a lot waxier and thicker. You can physically feel that. Helps in drought conditions. Trichomes or leaf hairs as well. We see an increase in those, which helps during hot, dry periods, helps with the moisture and keeping those trees uh, so they aren't drying out, which could be a benefit for fire as well. If you have a tree in a drought situation that maybe doesn't start to dry out where it could catch fire as easy. Uh, this was done with Bartlett out in the Northeast United States. This was looking at bacterial leaf scorch. This is a tree one year after treatment. Uh, now this isn't something that you're going to see all the time. I showed you that energy budget where it's spending its resources on other things. This is something we do see a lot where diseases or fun fungus and things like that, we see the trees with less issues with it. There's some debate on whether that's just because maybe the tree's a little bit healthier, so it's able to fend off some of these other issues, insects, droughts, and things that come up. But we see a lot of the side effects and things that are going on as far as leaf thickness and leaf hairs and roots that make the tree healthier in general. Uh, urban tree stress, uh, in, I'm not sure in Australia, in the United States, a lot of communities have a big push to have greener canopies and more full canopies, and they're really trying to push planting more trees in cities. In Seattle, for instance, they are trying to, I forget the number, they want a 50% tree canopy coverage, and right now it's at 20, or it's a, it's a big difference. And a lot of municipals and cities are trying to plant a lot of trees, and of course they end up interfering with our utility lines. So this is a good way we can actually help build some partnerships by using a tool like this that has plant health benefits as well as growth reduction benefits. So why do we talk about benefits? I guess I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. Customers always want healthy trees. And it's a good way for us to align with our customers. It's a good way to utilize a tool for health benefits of the tree. I like to talk a little bit about perception here. I gave a talk on this at the North American Tree Conference. You can find this talk online at the UAA. Uh, this entire talk was set up to look at municipal foresters and utility foresters and, and the perceptions out there and maybe some of the different objectives they have and ways we can use this tool to work together. So we all know that the perception with the municipal arborists or city arborists is that they are tree surgeons or tree doctors. We've heard that reference before. Uh, they've got the climbing competitions, and, and we've, uh, this is Jared from the Western Coast. I think he won the, the International Climbing Championship a couple years ago. Well, the perception out there within our industry and within the public is that the rest of the utility people are actually tree butchers. So we have this perception out there that these are just monkeys running around with chainsaws, making the trees look ugly and butchering them. And, of course, this guy... Show, you know, he's even got the spider web tattoo on the elbow, which is always a, a, good, a good look out there. No hard hat, no safety protection. Uh, when you really start to look at utility arborists and municipal arborists, they have the same training, the same education. They went to the same schools, got the same certifications with ISA. They just have different objectives on how they're managing the trees. The utility arborist needs to provide safe, reliable power, being the primary two 
the municipal arborist has got different objectives. So the perception out there is that they're doctors and we're butchers, but in reality it's just different objectives. So looking at all the growth benefits or the growth reduction and the health benefits associated with Camastat, we can start to look at how these benefits help multiple stakeholders. I've just got a couple up here, utility forester, municipal forester, homeowner. We could put up there, uh, you know, in the U.S. we've got the Forest Service, Fish and Game Wildlife. We've got all these organizations and different stakeholders that all try to manage a tree. Well, the growth reduction can help all of these people. The utility forester, obviously that's our main concern is to keep those trees away from the power line. With the municipal forester, they've got issues with trees growing into sidewalks or growing blocking street signs and things like that. So if you can have a growth reduction, that's benefiting them as well. Same with the homeowner. We go in and prune trees away from houses all the time because they're growing too close. A growth reduction can benefit multiple stakeholders. Drought resistance, same thing. If we've got a tree that's healthier and more resistant to drought, then we've got a tree we can manage. Once that tree, if it doesn't hold it throughout that drought very well or if it has issues in a drought and dies, now we've got a tree hazard which has been discussed multiple times today. So a healthy tree is going to benefit all of these different stakeholders. Scorch resistance, root systems, improved green color. I guess the green color doesn't necessarily help the utility forester other than maybe bridging that gap on the perception and, and helping with the partnerships. All right. Now I'm going to switch gears here and do a little bit on all right, a half hour. All right, a little bit on the history of tree growth regulators, some of the difficulties we've had over the years, and where we've come to now. There's been continuous and ongoing improvements in tree growth regulators. They started back in the 1950s, and back then they were looking at it as another option for, or another tool for mostly utility foresters. The products they had back then, I'm not familiar with any of these because I wasn't around back then, but uh, they used to have to paint it on every cut surface and it was very operationally inefficient and ineffective and expensive. Every cut that the company made, they had to paint this substance on. Is there anybody in the room that was around back then? Nelson? No? All right. So then in the 1970s, they started to kind of enhance and continue to look at them. A lot of this was done by the Electric Power Research Institute. They were starting to look at other options for tree growth regulators instead of just a paint. They focused more on bark banding and high pressure tree injection. And they started at this point categorizing them into two different categories. Type 1 growth regulators were basically herbicides that stopped the cell, elongate, or stopped the cell division. And type 2 category tree growth regulators stopped cell elongation. Many people are probably familiar with this. This is some of the techniques that caused a lot of issues when they were first developing application techniques to try to get this economical. Uh, you know, there were a few pros came out of this. They did find out that they could get a little bit better dosing, you know, trying to get the right amount of product into a tree. Uh, but a lot more cons came out of it than pros. The trees were being wounded, they were weeping, cracking, homeowners were upset, they had all kinds of issues with the application technique. Here's some pictures of trees, you know, many years after, and I'm sure there's plenty of pictures out there that are much worse than that. A lot of bad 
things happened with this type of application. Uh, a lot of it had to do with the high pressure, and it also had to do with they were using different alcohol carriers to try to get the product into the tree. A lot of issues with it, a lot of disfigurement. Then they came out with the, the tablet, which they would drill a hole into the tree and put a little tablet in it, and then that was supposed to go up into the tree and reduce the growth. Uh, well, on this tree, you can see the drill stopped right there. They put the tablet in several years ago, and the tablet's still sitting there because that tree compartmentalized around the tablet like it was supposed to, and that product never got into the tree. So you saw a lot of inconsistent results as far as dosing goes. You didn't see the tree taking up the right product. Some trees were being overregulated. Some trees weren't being regulated. They still had damages on the trees. And this was a huge issue, and it's an issue we still deal with today in the United States. And it sounds like it may be one of the issues that happened over here in Australia as well. In 1992, they came out with the first soil applied. Uh, this was brought out by Dow. It was Profile. And it's part of the newest generations of TGRs is Cambostat, which is applied the same way as a soil application. The key distinction from this for the older generation TGRs is that we now know how to get the proper amount of product to the growing points of the tree by doing a soil drench so we're not harming the tree. We're getting it evenly out to all growing points of the tree. There's two application types now. Uh, soil drench, where you just dig a little trench around the base of the tree and pour the product in, and then a soil injection with a probe. This is a, a, the way that most people do it now is soil injection. There are still some people that do soil drench, but soil injection is certainly the most prominent application method. It's quicker and, and a little bit easier. Some of the current improvements, as Ward mentioned, Rainbow does a lot of work around the country in both commercial arboriculture and a little in utility arboriculture. Uh, at any given time, our research director has got about 30 different projects going on with universities and utility companies. We spend a lot of time and money on that. By doing that with TGRs, we've added a lot of species. We've added some things on application timing with TGRs, rates, dosages. I believe we have 100 to 120 species on our label now, and when, it, when we first came out with soil applied, there was probably 10. Uh, application, we've come up with new application equipment. You saw the last slide where I was holding the soil injector there. Very precise piece of equipment so we can be accurate and get the right amount of product around the tree and get it spaced evenly. We also have looked at things as far as, uh, that might be on the next part here. Label improvements, I talked about adding species, 100 species on there now. We've also looked at some things as far as dosage reduction for trees that are stressed or more sensitive so we don't overregulate trees. And our company tends to put anywhere from about 3 to 5% into research. That's kind of the numbers we've done over the last few years. So we put a lot of effort into research with different products, and Cambostat is certainly one of them. So a summary is that tree growth regulators, they really started looking at them back in the 50s. There was a lot of early promise, but there are a lot of application issues. They found out that type 2 growth regulators, which is paclobutrazol, is the one that is currently used most frequently, uh, have become the industry standard. And when it's applied properly and accurately, it gets consistent and predictable results. All right, does it really work? I showed all the pictures of the growth reduction, all the pictures of the health benefits that we've looked at over the years. 
but how do we really get it to work and does it really work in a utility system? I talked about partnerships. A lot of utilities now are starting to use it as a way they can work with their municipal foresters to kind of partner with them. I've got an article that'll be out in the next UAA issue. It talks specifically about a partnership in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is a town in northern Indiana, and how he partners with him on trees that the utility person wants to remove, and the city forester knows that he will get a little too much flack if they remove them, they will use tree growth regulators on those trees as a way to, to mitigate that issue. It's great for trees along boulevards. When you're working with the city, they have a lot of trees in the city that we use with the utility lines, so it's a great partnership opportunity. Helps manage the needs of all the stakeholders. Extending or maintaining cycles. This is uh, complements of SMUD as well, which is a utility uh, in California, I guess northern central California. Casarina again. This is uh, trees that they used to have big issues with not staying on cycle. They're now on a three-year cycle. They don't have any issues with them. These trees were treated, I believe, two years before this picture was taken. You can see they still have plenty of clearance from the conductor. This is another one on improving reliability and keeping on maintaining the cycles. This was a tree down in Shreveport, Louisiana. The utility had a lot of difficulties with this tree. There's a school right here. They were never allowed to get the clearance they wanted on this water oak. They would usually be back and prune it about every year and a half or two years because they were having issues with it. They pruned it and treated it in 2001. This photo is 2005. This is four years after. They normally would have already been back and pruned this in the middle. Now they've extended this out to four years. I saw the tree in 2007 and they still had not pruned it. So now this tree went from 2001 to 2007. Normally they would have pruned that tree three times, gone back between cycles and pruned it. They decided to just leave that and let it go as long as it could. Uh, when I saw it in 2007, it was at the point where it needed to be pruned. I believe they pruned it in 2008. This is from the same circuits down in Louisiana. We talked a little bit about safety as far as the frequency. They would have a lot of outages, they'd prune the circuit, it would drop way back, and then it would go back up because they were having trees that weren't lasting the entire two-year circuit, or two-year cycle. They pruned it out and treated it with TGRs, and it stayed down. Their safety number stayed way lower for a, instead of going up and down. They had uh, two years of data before this that did the same thing. Maybe there were other things involved in this one. I, don't, I wasn't a part of this study. I don't know if it was done scientifically or if it was just a, hey, look at this. But it seems like there could be something there. This was done in Oklahoma, looking at resurgent growth again. Hackberry trees, really poor access, backyards, all climbers. These are trees that they were having to prune every two years. This picture is taken in 2002, which was two years after they treated it. Now, we talk about the resurgent growth. I've got a presentation we deal just on resurgent growth, and I'm going to touch on it a little bit here. But we all know that when we prune that tree, it grows back very rapidly. So we looked at a lot of data in different tree species. I think most of this was in Oklahoma area. And basically, after a tree was pruned, this is how much it was growing the first year after pruning, second, third, fourth. Pretty consistent pattern. If you look at it, by averages, we were pruning the tree and it was growing back 68 inches in the first year 
And by the time it gets back to its normal growth, it's down here. So these are trees that may grow a foot and a half a year, but when you first cut them, they're growing six feet. Since I don't know the growth rates of most of the trees over here, I also put this slide into percentages because I think the percentages are going to hold out pretty similar. So if you look at all those same trees in a percentage, this would be 100% of growth over four years, and this would be how much it grows in year one, year two, year three, year four. So if you had a tree that grows 10 feet over four years, it's going to grow four of those feet in the first year. Pretty simple I mean, we all understand this concept. We all know that when we prune that tree, we get that rapid response of regrowth. This is just looking at it a little bit more uh, scientifically with multiple species and trying to quantify those numbers. So if we had a four-year cycle and we were getting 15 feet of clearance, our mind would automatically think, okay, it's going to grow 45 inches a year until it's back in there. We just talked about resurgent growth, and we know that it would actually grow closer to this if we had a tree that was going to grow 15 feet over four years. So what year would it be most important to get growth reduction? If we were going to get 50% of the growth reduction, we want to be sure we set that up and get it timed with our pruning so we can reduce the growth down here. Anytime it's going to be good, it's still great if we can reduce two feet to one feet, but it's a lot better if we can go from six to three. If we look at this with a pruning cycle and then looked at it with TGRs, I've used 55% growth reduction on this model because that falls right in the middle of our 40 to 70, which is standard on a lot of species. Now the product does tend to wear off after about three years on one application, so I did put, you know, you maybe would have to retreat those trees. But we could take that four-year cycle and extend it to 12 years just with a tree growth regulator. And this is uh, the picture, the last picture I showed you of the hackberries. This is taken from that same area. This was hackberries and elm trees. This was done by a utility forester. It was not done by us. And this is representing cumulative growth over four years. So in year one, the tree's growing that much. These are untreated trees. And the blue columns are the treated trees. So over four years, his untreated trees were growing about 140 inches and his treated trees were growing about 60 inches. Now this is important from the resurgent growth standpoint. It's also very important from reducing costs. This was also work done by him. Those trees, and it was those specific ones from that slide, these were hackberries and elm trees that were in backyards. They were very expensive to, for him to prune. They were not holding for a four-year cycle. He was trying to be on a four-year cycle. So the cost associated to those trees before they were treated was $13,800 to prune 100 problem trees per year. He was going back mid-cycle and spending that again because he was repruning all those trees again, and then finally at the cycle. So this 41,000 reflects what he was spending on 100 trees over the course of a four-year cycle, which would normally be the two pruning events. When he looked at it with tree growth regulators, year one costs went up because he had to still prune those trees, but then he also applied the tree growth regulator. So in year one, his costs went up to by $4,000 roughly. And in year two and a half there, he didn't have to go back. That circuit held. He didn't have to go back and do any hot spotting as, as John was referring to it or mid-cycle pruning. 
So what he saw then in year four, this number, this 9,000, actually represents pruning that circuit or those 100 trees and retreating those 100 trees because he had a reduction. He didn't have to prune all 100 of them. He only had to prune a few of them. And he didn't have to take as much volume out of the trees he did prune. So what he saw was a $14,783 savings, which I can't convert it to Australian, but it, I, I didn't put any of the numbers in Australian for you guys, but I, on the miles as well, I apologize for that. The way he viewed this was this opened up that much money of his budget over four years that he could have pruned another 107 trees doing that, or he could have used it for another tool with IVM. All right, we're winding up to the end here. I think I'm doing good. I think I'm going to leave about 10 minutes or 15 minutes for questions. I want to end with a couple of numbers here. 3 to 5 billion, 1.1, 1.5. Uh, you guys may recognize the, the 3 to 5. I took a bigger number than, than John's. Dollars spent on veg management. I've heard 3 frequently. I have heard 4 to 5. I think I probably believe the three. John knows a lot more about it than I do. But three million spent on veg management in the U.S. per year. 1.1, last I saw, was kind of the average safety in the U.S. I think that was U.S. I don't think that was worldwide, which basically means every customer is losing their power 1.1 times per year. And the SADI was 1.5, so your average customer is losing their power for one and a half hours per year. I would like to add in the John, John's number. I actually had this one as well, but the, the uh, how many billion was it again for loss? Safety was 30, so, so these, this is the amount of money we're spending on our vegetation management program. Everybody on our system still losing their power. They're still losing it for this long, and it's costing us an additional $40 billion. You know, is that an acceptable program? Uh, I'm going to go back now to my Earth is flat concept. If we think of what I just showed there, those numbers, and this has been the path that we've been doing, we cut the trees away from the power line a certain amount because we decided 10 feet is the right amount, or 15 feet is the right amount, we're gonna clear it a certain amount away from it. We know that the natural process of those trees is to explode and have resurgent growth back at the power lines, which can then cause outages. I know there's not a whole lot caused by growings, but we're spending a lot of money to address those outages. So then we're gonna cut the tree again, and it's gonna go back, and it's going to, I've also termed this the vicious cycle. We prune the tree, it grows back, we prune the tree, it grows. We know that every time we put a saw to a tree, we're gonna to have to put it to that tree again, unless we remove it and spray it with an herbicide, which I would highly recommend. So if we look at this as the earth is round now, and I'm just looking at it from one tool, we've got tree growth regulators which can reduce that growth rate. It can improve our cycles, manage our cycles, reduces our costs, allows us to have money available for all the other tools out there in integrated vegetation management. I now can do some pre-job planning, I can do some hazard tree assessment, I can fly some lines with LIDAR, I've got other money open, so I can start to implement all these other vegetation management tools. So I would like to think that all the people in this room and the knowledge we have, that we do think the earth is round and we are gonna 
progress down using some of these tools. There's been a lot of great talks at this, at this conference and a lot of good tools that have been talked about. This concludes Jim Nesser's talk on tree growth regulators, a valuable integrated vegetation management tool. If you would like to learn more about integrated vegetation management, the ISA publishes a best management practice on IVM. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the code for the quiz is SA2621. Again, SA2621. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series at the International Society of Arboriculture's office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Thank you for listening to this episode, which is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day.